0: Welcome to It's a Scary Life. Thank you so much for listening to our second episode now. We are very thankful for you, the listener, because we are hopefully doing this for you, the listener. Are you out there? (laughs) So, you may have noticed an improvement in sound quality. Huzzah. Yes. So, we have fixed some of the sound problems for the first episode, and now we're a little more uniform. Excellent. We're both using the same kind of microphone. Yes. That's what she means. <laughs> <laughs> also, we put stickers on them. Yeah, so I can tell them apart. Yes. Mine's cat. I have a little heart. It's real cute. Okay, so, today... Today, I am very excited to be telling the story... Of the Borden murders. <gasps> like Lizzie Borden? Yes. Yes! Oh my gosh. I don't know anything. I know, okay, I know like three things. Victorian era. Yes. In America? Yes. Cool. Um, She like axes her parents, but not her big sister. Yes. Which is good. As a big sister, I appreciate that. <laughs> Obviously, you shouldn't fucking kill people, but... If you don't kill your big sister, then, then Ellen approves of you. I think I think it's nice. I think it's, you know, a sense of sorority. <laughs> well, you'll see a deep sense of sorority Aww. in store. This is going to be heartwarming. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> what? Oh, God. I remembered what this podcast is actually about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so awesome. what year are we? Are we, We're in crinolins or hoop skirts? It is 1892. Fuck yeah. So those skirts are many layered. <laughs> many, many layered. Petticoats. Many petticoats, many crepe, mm-hmm. sharp, and blouses and dresses. <sighs> So nice. Ew. I mean, okay, listen, the Victorian era is fucked up for many reasons. <laughs> a lot, like a lot, a lot. They were essentially poisoning themselves at every turn. Oh, of course. Like, unintentionally even. Oh, no. They were very aware. Of that yeah, I was about to say, like, sometimes they knew. And radium and lead were killing them. Yeah, they but they didn't be aware. Because, like, the aesthetic. Of like, course. Like, yeah, the wallpaper Pair might kill me. Gorgeous. But, like, God, it's that right shade of green. Yeah. <laughs> But the fashion is fun, especially when you discount all of the whole like tight lacing nonsense. Mm-hmm. because, like, yeah, a regency course, it's gonna be more comfortable. But even doctors at the time were like frantically telling the few women that were tight-lacing, like, please stop. Exactly. You're gonna hurt yourself. And like most women weren't because they didn't have that kind of time or money. Yeah, I mean, yeah. most people would only bring their waist in an inch or two. Yeah, and it, it it's, you know. and its emphasis. Um, right. It's more about the silhouette, which is a theme that you see throughout a lot of history. I mean, a lot of people nowadays just do that by sucking in. Yeah. Also, corsets are more comfortable than bras sometimes. Honestly, yes. It's And it's so much more satisfying taking them off at the end of the day, like slipping out of the corset and like, oh, so nice. And it helps your posture. I already have some good posture. I already you told you why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> My nana had a hump, and I don't want to hump. She's calling from the Secret Garden. Apparently, that's a thing. I'm not recommending that we watch or that you read Secret Garden because it does have some uh I don't stuff. Care. Yeah. yeah that's fair <laughs> know, it is okay. white people nonsense yeah of the highest order i read what it was about and i was like yeah i could skip that that's fair <laughs> anyway so we are discussing the borden murders hell yeah which is 1892 90s they are very gay 90s yes yeah that's literally what it was called yeah <laughs> yeah end of the century Woo! exactly yeah And it's about a family in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is a little town. Not really a little town. It's a smaller city. Okay. Right on a river near the water, just along the, pretty close to the border of uh, Rhode Island and Massachusetts. It's right next to, like, the tiniest state. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Love it. But it's one of the smaller cities. But it's, like, you know, it was a bustling city. It was a textile city mm-hmm. at the time. And I believe it might still be some type of factory city. Okay. I didn't do too much research on what it is now. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, back in know. the 1800s. was yeah. what it was important. And to start... I do want to just apologize for, you know, kitchen noises, some of the noise problems of the last episode. We'll be improving. We'll be learning as we go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The best way to make sure we do is to follow us on all social media and become patrons on our Patreon. Yeah. And talk to us. Yeah. We like talking. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of why we're doing this. Exactly. (laughs) All right, and getting into the background of the Borden murders, starting with the man of the hour, Mr. Andrew Borden. Oh, is he the dad or something? Yes. Okay, okay. cool. Andrew Jackson Borden. Oh no! Was born September thirteenth, eighteen twenty-two. He had grown up in a modest but wealthy home. The Borden's themselves were a well-known family in Fall River, Massachusetts. Most of whom resided in the Hill, which is the wealthy part of the town, filled with like luxurious Victorian homes. You know, mm-hmm. it's the rich people side where they all get to be there and they don't have to talk to you anybody. Look at the pores. Yes, they don't have to look at the pores. Exactly. So for a reference of how well-known the family and how wealthy they were collectively, there's a street named Borden Street in Fall River that is actually in the northeast intersection near the infamous Borden House. And it was named Borden Street prior to the murders. Nice. So during his youth, Andrew struggled a bit financially while breaking out just as a businessman, but eventually became very well-to-do. What made him much better as a businessman was when he went into the manufacture and sale of furniture and caskets. How, uh, How interesting. Yeah. It's stuff people need. Well, was he buried in one of his own caskets? That's a good question. Because, like, that would be deeply interesting. Like, was it good enough for the family themselves? Yes, was it good enough for Borden? Right? So, as Andrew grew his success and his wealth, he also became a property developer and bought several commercial properties, including an entire corner of Main Street. Mm -hmm. He was also the director of several textile mills, president of the Union's Savings Bank and a director of Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. I gotta say, murder is bad. But this dude owned textile mills. So I'm a little less sympathetic towards him than I was at the start. And I wasn't the slavery connections make you uncomfortable. Well, yeah. Also the treatment of workers at that time. I mean there'd been some union gains, but not enough by any means. And you don't get rich, at least not, you know, by part of Main Street rich. Yeah. By uh, being ethical or kind to your workers, so um, yeah, and you can <laughs> choke or whatever happens. It's an axe, right? It, it is an axe. Does he choke on his blood? I hatch it. Actually, Ooh, smaller, easier to wield. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Borden had also owned two farms in nearby Swansea. Yeah. At the time of his death, Andrew Borden was valued at about three hundred thousand dollars, which is somewhere between nine and ten million in today's money. Yeah, I don't like him. Despite his wealth, Andrew was a generally frugal man. Instead of buying a large new home for his family, he bought a tenement house at 92 Second Street in the Industrial District and converted it into a single family home. He installed only one bathroom with indoor plumbing in the cellar, which at the time the wealthy were fitting their entire home, the miracle of running water. Though... Some sources state that it wasn't put in the entire home because the women of the house didn't wish to live in an active construction site while the plumbing was being put in the rest of the home. Okay, that makes sense. Can yeah. we go back to, it was a tenement building? Yes, yeah, so it was two different apartments. Hmm. Okay. I j- mm. right. <laughs> I don't, I don't. I mean, one. yes, tenements are bad and we should rebuild, but like the same people should get to move into nicer, more spacious uh, apartment. Accommodations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he also did not fit the home with the new interior fad gas lighting. Mr. Borden saw it as a necessary expense that could actually make his family less safe than if they stuck with the kerosene lamps, which at the time, a lot of people figured. Yeah, it's time to draft. So it wasn't too unusual. Uh-huh. Many newspapers covering the Borden murder case at the time had claimed that Emma and Lizzie Borden were pressuring their father to move to the Hill. In truth, Emma and Lizzie did not urge him to move as the home was more convenient for him to get to and from work. Though his daughters were frustrated with him for being frugal compared to other businessmen, Andrew was also known to spend plenty on his daughters, to send them to good schools, keep them in fine dresses and seal skin capes, give Lizzie a tour of Europe, and give the girls plenty of spending allowance each week. Mr. Warden was a man who made his money and simply did not have interest in the whims of young women and spending and the spending that that may bring. That's fair, but I mean, if he's giving them a good allowance, they can buy that stuff themselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're fine. They have a seal skin. Do you know how warm that would be? Oh, yeah. So Andrew Borden married Sarah Anthony Morse on Christmas Day in 1845. Charming. The two went on to have three daughters, the first being Emma Lenora Borden, born on March 1st, 1851. Yeah, that is a name, Emma Lenore. Ooh. Lenora. Oh, Lenora. hmm Oh, Quite a name. Yeah, that just changed my entire opinion. <laughs> no, it didn't. It's just a little snootier than just Lenore. Mm-hmm. Um, their second daughter, Alice Esther, was born on May 3rd, 1856, but unfortunately died on March 10th, 1858 of hydrocephalus oh. or hydrocephalus. Oh, uh, okay. Hydrocephalus. Yeah. Not okay. So water in the brain. Oh, poor kid. The final daughter of Andrew and Sarah was Lizzie Andrew Borden, born on July nineteenth, eighteen ninety. What was your middle name? Andrew. Nice. Yes. All right. I mean, right out of the gate I got I got some motive. <laughs> Andrew's a perfectly nice name. It's just, like, if, if if your kid ends up identifying as a woman, which she obviously did, and someone's like, oh, what's your middle name? And she's like, Andrew. That's just a whole lot of questions. Not really. It was quite traditional at the time to have the father's name as a middle name. Yeah, that's true. It just doesn't roll off the tongue as nicely as oh, of like course. Lenora. Emma Lenora. I mean, and then, like... I mean, Lenora was also a different family name. Still. And Esther. Different family name. Mm. Yes. but Lizzie was graced with Andrew. Really wanted that son, huh? Probably. Andrew Borden. It was said to have loved his daughters fiercely, and even wore a ring Lizzie had given him every day while never wearing a wedding ring. Okay. Okay. We're not gonna... Well... I mean, at this point, how common were wedding rings? rings? It was still not as common as it is now. It it was the early 20th century with the De Beers and the campaign for engagement rings that made it so wearing a wedding ring at all times was much more norm. Yeah. Okay, so that's, we can call that cute. Yeah, yeah. It cute. wasn't as common to always wear your wedding ring at the time, mm-hmm. which honestly makes sense. Like, it might not go with everything. Exactly. Like, you got it. You know, it's either it's gold, and then you can only like really wear the gold stuff, or it's you know silver, and then like you're kind of. I mean, if you've got a certain I style. I mean, I have a specific aesthetic where I only wear silver, so. Yeah, so that's fine. Like, that that makes sense. But, like, you know, you can change it up. Anywho, three years after Lizzie had been born, her mother had taken ill and died of uterine congestion, which <gasps> oh, may have no. been a miscarriage. Oh. Yeah. And then coupled with the disease of the spine. And that was all before Lizzie could ever have a memory of her. Oh. 12-year-old Emma was asked by her mother to look after Lizzie before her death, a role Emma took seriously nearly all of their lives, doing anything and everything for Lizzie. The big sister. I mean, it's far too much responsibility to put on a 12-year-old, but it, you know, it's the big sister. Yeah, the instinct kicks in. So Mr. Borden remarried June 6, 1865. Oh, so she didn't kill her bio mom did she no <gasps> all right i mean listen stepmothers can be lovely charming people i'm sure however yes so know. he got married to 37 year old abby durfee gray oh a woman no. with no personal property of any value oh so she would mm, mm. Mm-hmm. all right also a great um, name not a single bad word could be said around Fall River about Abby outside of her own household. Abby would be an advocate for the girls when they wanted something from their father and was known to be someone who could bear a lot of weight and say nothing. All right, I'm starting to feel bad that I said I I thought that Lizzie was cool. Okay. <laughs> I still think she's, you know, she's she lost her mom and that can mess people up. And she got a new mom before she could even create memories. I know, but then you've got to kind of grapple with that. And I'm not saying that you should, like, commit murder, because obviously that's wrong, and we don't condone that, mostly. But, like, poor kid. Yeah. But also, maybe don't murder someone who's been really chill to you their whole lives. Yeah. So, Emma and Lizzie were given a religious upbringing by their father and stepmother. They were regular attendants at the essential congregational church. They would volunteer their time at the church as young women and Lady and Lizzie would go on to becoming a Sunday school teacher for the church. Oh, how nice. Abby took right to Emma and Lizzie, embracing them as if they were her own children. Emma never accepted her as stepmother and maintained a cordial but cold and distant relationship with Abby, seeing her as a threat to taking care of Lizzie. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, that's a big sister. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying good for you, Emma, but good on you, kid. That's a big sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lizzie had some affection toward Abby when she was young but Emma's attitude toward Abby did spread to Lizzie Hell yeah. Lizzie grew up calling Mrs. Borden mother until a disagreement soured their relationship a few months before the murders after Ooh. which Lizzie referred to her stepmother exclusively as Mrs. Borden Ooh. Lizzie ultimately did think of Emma as her mother to turn to rather than Abby as Emma was a blood Borden and had been tasked by her real mother to take care of her abby found herself on the losing end of a sisterly bond that divided the home and that only got worse as the women aged and the sisters remained in the home yeah because how old were they at the time of the murders? they were in their 30s that's fair yeah i mean it's a it's a small city right you probably knew all the eligible guys and, exactly you know, and a lot of them are cousins yeah that's a good move actually yeah though <laughs> yeah. poor abby i mean she really is trying her best oh yes she you know, she's she's been put into what is a difficult situation. I mean, convincing a preteen to trust you. Yeah. I mean, even just put up with you. That's a <laughs> that's a challenge. Um, as someone who was not even fond of other preteens when I was a preteen. So Emma was not very social and kept to herself most of the time, making her prospects for marriage slimmer. And Lizzie loved to go to parties and to be around people, but she had some odd behaviors that made people keep a bit of a distance from her once they'd reached their social quota for not being rude with her. Oh. In research, I found no proof that either sister had any interest in marriage. And in fact I found the the sisters simply seemed to focus on inheriting their father's wealth for their well-being. So any hope for Abby to live peacefully in her own home was just kind of slim to none. Yeah. That wasn't happening. Poor lady. Lizzie had grown up to be a well-educated lady. She taught a Sunday school for Chinese immigrants and was known for her fine needlepoint and charitable work about town with the Young Women's temperance Union (sighs) in the early 1890s. (laughs) Lizzie even took that long trip to Europe with several friends that was financed by her father. When asked about Lizzie's demeanor, two main points for her personality come forward: Lizzie's extreme reserve and stoicism, and her temper. Ah. A grammar school principal remembered Lizzie as being subject to varying moods. Her uncle Hiram Harrington was quoting, stating that she is very strong-willed and will fight for what she considers her rights, even calling it a repellent disposition in another interview. Ooh. One friend interviewed believes strongly in Lizzie's innocence because... She saw her as straightforward and even stated, Unless she were to confess herself, and then the marvel would be greater to me that she had concealed her act than that she did it. That is her character. If she had a reason sufficient for herself for murdering those people, it would be like her to say she did it and give her reason. Okay, one, she sounds like she'd be a nightmare teacher. Um, (laughs) Like you always have to like kind of gauge her mood. Like, all right, what mood is Miss Borden in? Oh, yes. Yeah. But, on the other hand, I love that her friend was just like, listen, she would have told us by now. Like, if if Lizzie did it, that bitch would be bragging. We know. We know. (laughs) I know her. She would just tell you. What an interesting character. I love it. So the Borden house was not always a peaceful home. About a year before the murders, the house had been robbed in broad daylight while Bridget and the sisters were home. Bridget being? The maid. Ah. Yes. She becomes important. Oh, like in the like in the movie with who was it? Kristen Stewart? There's some there's some movie where the maid is like kinda of the focal point. I have no clue. I haven't watched it, but like it looked I've- interesting. Yeah. So the thief had made off with $80 in cash, 25 to $30 worth of gold, Mrs. Borden's gold watch and chain, and several horse car tickets from Mr. Borden's desk drawer. <laughs> no other room had been disturbed. So it seemed the thief had entered the back of the house, ran up to the master bedroom, and ran off with their loot without anyone seeing them coming or going. Good for them. And also, the Tuesday prior to the murders, the family had fallen ill after supper. Andrew and Abby immediately became convinced someone must have poisoned them and called for Dr. Bowen. Ooh. When Dr. Bowen asked the family what they had had for dinner, they answered, swordfish. (laughs) You know (laughs) know how easy it is for fish to go very bad without fucking proper refrigeration? Like, yeah. Yeah. It's the 1890s. God's bless. They're mostly just salting their food, and it's August. They're eating fish. Uh, I mean, they're how close are they to the sea, even? Relatively close, but okay. even if it was cut that morning, I would not probably eat it later than four. Yeah. Yeah. It's August. God. I mean, yeah, no. What the fuck? So he basically concluded they'd eaten bad fish and told them to drink water and sleep it off. <laughs> This poor doctor. Well, no, he was getting a decent fee for this. <clears throat> it's like having to attend to the town's rich who are just like, oh dear, someone must have poisoned me. I have a slight stomach ache. Yes. <laughs> and, he's, and he's like, no, we ate day-old oysters. And, and and drank the juices they were in for, for after dinner. Like exactly. Fuck it, of course you're gonna get sick. So early I mentioned an argument that soured the relationship between yes. Lizzie and her stepmother Abby to the point where Lizzie stopped calling her mother and started calling her Mrs. Borden. Hell yeah. So Abby's stepmother, the widow Gray, was unable to pay for her half of the, of the duplex she lived in when it was put on the market. Bertie, Abby's younger sister, whom she doted on like a, a daughter, lived with the widow Gray, at least temporarily at the time, mm-hmm. partially at the time. And Abby couldn't bear to see her sister forced from her home. So Mr. Borden, in an act of generosity, bought Mrs. Gray's half of the duplex and deeded it to Mrs. Borden. Aww. That's nice. Yeah. Until oh no. Lizzie and Emma found out. <sighs> Emma and Lizzie had heard of this property exchange from people outside of the family. Okay, now that's a bad move. Which made what would have already been an upsetting situation for them enraging. Both sisters were jealous and hated their father for making such a big purchase for Mrs. Borden. What most disturbed them was the amount of persuasion she seemed to have over him. I mean, they're fucking. I mean, not to <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, but like... But she is a threat to their inheritance. Oh, of course. Had they not realized this? Oh, of course. Good. Like, there's concern about her not being a bloodborn and of course they're thinking <sighs> about their inheritance. God. I mean, I get not wanting someone to replace your mom. I get that. That being said, let the lady have one property. Yeah, their father could have planned that better. Yeah. So Emma and Lizzie did not like having someone who wasn't a blood having that kind of power. <laughs> in an act of fairness, Andrew Borden so- sold one of his properties to the sisters for a dollar and allowed them to have it as a stream of income. Though this did nothing to fix the rift between the women. And Emma and Lizzie soon learned that everything they'd make off the building would have to be put back into the building in repairs. Uh... So about after five years, their father graciously bought back the building for $5,000 just weeks before his death. I think earlier I said this was a f- argument was a few months. It is a few years prior okay. to the murders. Okay. I think I said that wrong earlier and I want to correct it. Oh, yeah. And that, that, that kind of of means that it was simmering for longer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who is it murder time? Not quite. What else you got? Before diving into the murders, I'd like to talk about the famous doggerel and its Horrible inaccuracies. What's the dog girl? Can you sing it? Yeah, so most listeners have probably heard this rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, gave her father forty one. and sometimes there is a final couplet added to onto the dog girl and my personal favorite of those being uh, let's just so hope she won't find you or she'll give you 42 (laughs) oh my god that's lovely i love it so much it would get annoying hearing it every time i walk down the street it's so dark i love it so fun um, so, A Dog Girl is a comic verse composed in an irregular rhythm. And, like, the nursery rhyme sound that we know now, to it may have not actually been the original tune. Mm. There is record of the dog girl being sung to the tune of Tarara Boondier, a popular vaudeville and music hall song that came out in 1891. So, ah. it came out just before these murders. So, yeah, I would be like, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax." When she saw what she had done, gave her father 41. Yeah, that's great. I love that. (laughs) I mean, obviously it's gruesome and macabre, but like, yeah. But that's part of the fun of the doll girl. Absolutely. It's a little (laughs) bit (laughs) dark. So the first major inaccuracy of it is, of course, that... It was Lizzie Gordon's stepmother, Abby, who had been killed. Yeah, but that doesn't fit the scheme. Of course. Next is that the murder weapon is believed to be a hatchet, not an axe. The marks left behind were too small to be an axe. And neither parent had received such a large number of blows from the murder weapon. Aww! Not I mean, quite as many. That's good. But, like, I can see why they changed it. I know. I, that, I know that we're all here for, like, historical accuracy and whatever. But, like, you know what? If it doesn't fit the rhyme and the meter, change it. Exactly. Live your life. It's like when Shakespeare was like, fuck wayward, we're just going to say weird. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it takes too many syllables. It doesn't work with the pentameter. And honestly, he was right. Good for him. All right. Murder time? Murder time. Oh boy. That, what? Is the maid okay? Is she going to be okay? She's fine. Okay, cool. At roughly 11 a.m. on Thursday, August 4th, 1892. Bridget Sullivan, the live-in maid of the Borden house, was awoken from a nap by screaming downstairs coming from the youngest daughter in the home, Lizzie, crying out for her. Bridget ran downstairs to find Lizzie at the foot of the back of the stairs of the home. Her back to the screen door. Lizzie asked Bridget to run for Dr. Bowen because her father had been hurt. Bridget moved quickly toward the front door and on her way almost stepped into the city room to check on Mr. Borden herself. But Lizzie called for her to not go in the room and just quickly get the doctor. Now, Emma and Lizzie called Bridget Maggie, and there's no known record of why this became her nickname. Bridget and Maggie are not close names. I don't get it either. Um i don't know (laughs) so sometimes when i am quoting lizzie she will say maggie and that means bridget okay so bridget then rushed across the street to Dr. Bowen's home and rigorously rang the bell. Only, he was out making house calls, so Bridget ran back to Lizzie, still standing in the doorway at the back of the house. After hearing Dr. Bowen wasn't in, Lizzie asked Bridget to get her close friend, Alice Russell, just around the corner on Borden Street. (laughs) After Bridget left, Lizzie heard the voice of her neighbor, Miss Adelaide Churchill, asking what was going on as she had seen Bridget running to Dr. Bowen's house when she was bringing home her groceries, and then through her kitchen window, saw Lizzie against the back door, looking distressed. Lizzie told Adelaide that her father had been killed. When Adelaide asked where Lizzie was when it happened, she said she was in the barn. Adelaide then asked about Abby and Lizzie, stated she didn't know where she was, and then quickly corrected that there was a note about a sick family member. Lizzie then casually drops that her father must have an enemy, and that they might be poisoning the milk. Adelaide ran to get lizzie a doctor in case the poisoning was a cause of death and left lizzie alone in the hats again god's bless. she's yeah she knows what she's doing exactly When Bridget arrived at Alice Russell's home, Alice thought the family's illness had worsened as she knew that they had taken ill on the Tuesday prior. Alice called out to ask if the family was worse and Bridget simply said yes. Mr. Borden is dead before making sure to confirm Alice would hurry over running back to Lizzie. As Bridget arrived back, Dr. Bowen was exiting his carriage already informed to go to the Bordens by his wife. Dr. Bowen found Lizzie and she told him her father had been stabbed or hurt. She then led him into the dining room and pointed into the sitting room. Dr. Bowen entered and was not prepared for what he was about to see. On the couch of the sitting room lay Andrew Borden on his right side, almost unrecognizable from gaping wounds to his head. His instincts told him to look around the room to see if anything had been disturbed and everything looked fine. There wasn't even a drop of blood on the side table. He checked Mr. Borden's pulse and the body was still warm but oh. nothing. Alice Russell arrived at the Borden house after changing her dress three times because a proper Victorian lady must be wearing <laughs> the appropriate dress for the occasion at all times to oh, not cause a scandal. Wait, isn't she a maid? Alice? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so she's one of Lizzie's friends rather than uh, yes. Bridget's friends. Oh, okay, okay, that makes more sense. I was about to say, the maid should have like two outfits in their day off outfit. Like, yeah, not that hard. Lizzie sent bridget to get alice okay okay that makes more sense yes um after changing her dress, she immediately went to lizzie's aid and wasn't informed of what happened to mr borden while being held by alice in a chair in the kitchen lizzie asked will somebody find mrs borden Lizzie insisted Abby had received a note about a sick family member and that she had gone to be at their side. Bridget stated that if she knew where Mrs. Borden's sister lived, she'd run to go get her. And Lizzie tells her that she thought she'd heard Mrs. Borden come back home. Lizzie says she doesn't know where Mrs. Borden is and she wished someone would go look through the house for her. Ooh... Oh, she's good. I mean, this is awful and immoral. However, like, hell yeah, truly. Um, also, like, I'm I'm interested to know where she actually committed the killings because obviously, like, yes. you're gonna get blood on the side table, or you or you clean it off, but like, still, it's gonna ruin the sofa. Yeah, so you're hoping to inherit. Yeah, exactly. You. So at this point, Dr. Bowen comes back to the kitchen and asks for a sheet to cover Mr. Borden. He had to go back into the sitting room to retrieve the key from for Mr. and Mrs. Borden's room and gave it to Bridget and Adelaide to go fetch a sheet. Lizzie then asked Dr. Bowen to send her sister Emma a telegram to come home. Where was Emma? Emma was off with some family for a little trip that Lizzie had actually come home early from. How convenient. Yes. Also, good job making sure that, you know, your big sister was not going to be implicated in this. That's great. (laughs) Good on you. Bad on you, but like, good on you. So after Dr. Bowen left, he encountered a neighbor, Charles Sawyer, and another gentleman at the door. He was resistant to let them in until Charles identified his friend as Officer George Allen of the Fall River Police Department. Officer Allen then deputized Charles and asked him not let anyone in other than police while he went to get more officers which of course got a bit violated because a lot of family members were allowed in and out yeah and it's a small town or it's a small city so that's like half of the the folks (laughs) all the cousins are like let's see so Lucy Lucy So Lizzie grew impatient for someone to go look for Mrs. Borden and insisted someone go look for her. Bridget and Adelaide reluctantly started moving through the house looking for her, beginning with the first floor. So the structure of the house, I should explain some of this. The downstairs has an entry Mm -hmm. and then you see stairs in front of that. To the right is the sitting room. You go back behind the sitting room is the dining room and behind that is the kitchen. Right. And then on the left Side is what used to be bedrooms, but is now one large living room. Nice. Upstairs is Liz. So if you go up these front stairs, is Lizzie's bedroom. Mm-hmm then Emma's bedroom off to the side through it, and a guest room. Okay. And then there's two doors. So this Lizzie's bedroom is what used to be the dining room space of okay. one apartment. And then there's doors through there that are typically locked in the house. And the kitchen area of that upper apartment became a master bedroom. Okay. With an area for a chamber pot. Of course. Yeah. Yes. And slop pale. Yep. hmm Gotta have it. Mm-hmm. And then they had an attic room that could only be accessed through the back stairs passing the master bedroom. Okay. And that's where um, Bridget's area was. Right. Yeah. yeah. So they start with the first floor. <laughs> yep. When Bridget and Adelaide moved up the stairs with Bridget leading, Adelaide noticed a familiar someone on the floor of the guest room while her eyes were level with the second floor. Ooh. Adelaide stayed right where she was, while Bridget, feeling brave, investigated a little more. She got as far as the foot of the bed when she saw Mrs. Borden face down on the ground between the bed and bureau in a pool of drying blood. What a what a fucking day to come to work. Yep. I mean, I know that you didn't get that you didn't get sick days or anything, (laughs) but like, gads! I bet Bridget was really wishing for a sick day right about now. I have a feeling she got kind of six days. Yeah it was. Where she, they'd be like Bridget you're sick just go upstairs. Yeah that's right. And they would just do shit for themselves. Yeah that's right. They were a hand enough family where they did some of their own chores. Yeah. That makes sense. And Uh, she was able to take naps in the middle of the day. I mean, my God. Mm -hmm. that. That's a cushy position in the Victorian era. Oh, exactly. Even nowadays. I mean, if I had a live-in maid, I would have structured siestas for them. Well, yeah. But also, we're not in the Victorian era, where (laughs) workers' rights are very, very low. Especially domestic workers. Very kind to her. Yes. And so Adelaide Mm -hmm. ran back toward the kitchen, yelling they'd found Mrs. Borden, and that she had been killed, too. Also, if Lizzie had waited, like, for people to do that independently... Probably some of the blame wouldn't have fallen on her. I'm just saying I understand that there's, like, pathologies involved in this. Like, come on. Come on. Don't leave them. I know you want them to find it. But, like, (laughs) common sense, folks. Don't commit murders. But also, if you're gonna, just use some fucking common sense. Makes it more fun for me. Makes you harder to find them. Yeah! Yeah! which so is don't bad don't do that the fall river police begin arriving at the borden home at this point many officers arrived at the borden home and began their search they looked through the barn the cellar each room of the house and in closets just anywhere anywhere yep. things could be found they searched for any clues they could find to catch the person who did this and throughout this search Three detectives did their best to question Lizzie throughout the day. And they asked about the family's mornings, her whereabouts, and if there were any Portuguese in the area. Because no matter what, xenophobia will rear its ugly head first thing when something like this happens. Why the fuck do they have to? I I understand why they went there, but why the fuck would you go there? Police even arrested a Portuguese man who withdrew his funds from the bank on the same day as the Borden murders on suspicion of having committed the murders and now trying to skip town. Oh my god, was he, he, they didn't rough him up or anything. Was he okay? I don't know. I hope they didn't rough him up, but there's no there's no records in that. Poor dude. So. Dr. Bowen did his best to shield Lizzie from questioning from the police and family members who were showing up. Shout out to that doctor. Yeah, he insisted she go up to her room to be out of the commotion and brought her up there. So the adjoining door between Lizzie's room and the master, which I had mentioned stayed mutually locked, generally, um, was even blocked by Lizzie's writing desk on a typical day. Mm-hmm. And so throughout the day, police officers would try to open the door to Lizzie's room to speak with Lizzie or search the guest room, but it was locked while Lizzie rested inside. <laughs> Dr. Bowen had even given Lizzie a preparation of bromocaffeine which has a similar potency to aspirin. Nice. Um, to calm her nerves. There are rumors that he had given her morphine to calm her nerves, but this was not the day he started a regimen of morphine for Lizzie. But he did? He did, yes. I mean, that that's one way to get your drugs. It's an important detail. Oh. So ultimately, the locked door can only be used to keep so many officers out. Two policemen, Officer Bedley and Officer Harrington, were able to get in at different times to question Lizzie about what had happened that day. Next, Officer Malley I think is how you say it, questioned her closely, followed by Assistant Marshal John Fleet. Lizzie's story to each of these people had some worrying changes from questioning to questioning okay, in the police's yeah. perspective. However, Lizzie's story, given the that day, goes kind of something like this: There were a lot of chores to get done around the house when Lizzie was waiting for her irons to heat to do some pie ironing. She knew Bridget had gone upstairs for a nap before preparing dinner. Lunch is dinner in this time period, and dinner is called supper. Mm-hmm. It's a Victorian era, just roll with it. And she believed Mrs. Borden was upstairs tidying or con out to do some errands that she had mentioned that morning. Lizzie sat reading a Harper's magazine until she got bored of it and thought of a fishing excursion some friends were organizing, which prompted her to go looking for a piece of lead iron to use as a sinker for her fishing pole while she waited for the irons to heat. Because irons at this time, they were, I mean, you had to heat them on the stovetop, and they were literally yeah. iron. Yeah, they yeah. were literally just hunks of iron. Yep. And yeah, that could take a good 30, 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, to even get close to the temperature you need. So Lizzie went into the yard toward the barn, leaving the screen door unlatched behind her. She gathered a few ripe pears from the ground around the tree in the yard on her way. She then went into the barn and sat and ate each pear. Once she ate her pears, Lizzie went to the barn loft to look for a piece of metal to use as a sinker. She claimed to be in the barn for about 20 to 30 minutes. Then suddenly, Lizzie heard a strange noise. She described the noise as a scraping or a groan. By the time Lizzie had reached the screen door again, it was wide open. While being questioned by Assistant Marshal Fleet, he noticed some of Lizzie's behavior as unusual. When Lizzie had changed her dress after the discovery of the bodies, she changed it to a pink and white dress (gasps) with a red ribbon. What the fuck? I mean... (sighs) Did did they have morning clothes? Yes, they did. (gasps) She had a whole closet full of dresses for her and Emma. Oh, my gosh. But, I mean, so it wasn't like she didn't have, like, a full morning gown to go into. And even if not, like, you'd expect her to have some, like, half-morning or something. Yeah, she'd at least be in black. Yeah. (laughs) As he began a question with the words, has your father or mother, Lizzie quickly cut him off to assert, she is not my mother. She is my stepmother. My own mother is dead. I mean, they're both dead, but Yeah, this alongside Lizzie's stern demeanor and lack of tears for her murdered family members while being questioned raised many red flags for the assistant marshal. Now, some of this could easily be based on Victorian standards of how a woman should behave when there is a reason for grief. Lizzie was expected to, of course, change into a black mourning dress. A little bit more on what those expectations of a dress probably in part two. Hell yeah. Um, and to be in tears over the deaths of her family members. But when Assistant Marshal Fleet compared notes with Officer Harrington's interview with Lizzie, he noticed Harrington had some similar vibes stating in his notes, Lizzie stood by the foot of the bed and talked in the most calm and collected manner. Her whole bearing was most remarkable under the circumstances. There was not the least indication of agitation, no sign of sorrow or grief, no lamentation of the heart, no Comment of the horror of the crime and no expression of a wish that the criminal be caught. All this and something that to me is indescribable gave birth to a thought that was most revolting. Cool. I mean, on the one hand, some people compartmentalize. On the other hand, we we know she did it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, I could argue someone who was dissociating in the moment would definitely behave that way. Yeah, they would just absolutely. seem very robotic and like let's get through this yeah yeah Mm -hmm. tanya kuiper again there's actually a video of her going through the crime in the house where it happened like at the crime scene and she just looks so dead-eyed and dissociated and like the police use this as a proof that she's like evil inside because she's so no emotion while talking about this horrible crime she committed and in the place it happened and she didn't shed a tear and it's like no she she a hundred percent was completely numb inside yeah she probably has a very unclear memory of that moment Mm -hmm. if any However, not putting on morning clothes, I would assume that that, I mean, if you're rich enough to be able to afford morning clothes, you'd think that would almost be one of those automatic, robotic things where you're just like, yeah. okay, this is this is this is the next step. She is a rich enough woman to be concerned about how she looks in society, or at least a black be, armband. Yeah. You know, like some, even if it was just the black armband, because she's not used to going into full mourning. Mm-hmm. You know, because she hasn't had to since she was a baby essentially a no veil is expected yeah i mean just you know you, because because you didn't always and I, I know we're going to get into this next week but you didn't always have to wear the full kind of matte black outfits it really depended on how well you knew the person and how long ago they died but even just putting on an armband um for like a very very distant relative or a friend's death yeah or, yeah. But your parents are murdered. People expect full black regalia. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just saying that even just putting one of those on, it would have been like, oh, I forgot that this is the thing I have to do because I'm not used to putting on full black. Mm-hmm. Anyways, All right. We'll get more into that. So, county medical examiner Dr. William Dolan happened to be walking down 2nd Street at 1145 in the morning. I love of the these small town fives. Um, and noticed the commotion, so he made his way into the house in case he was needed. He immediately sprung into action while making some mistakes along the way. The couch was moved in the sitting room, and the bed in the guest room was partially covering Mrs. Borden, so that was moved too before the crime scenes were fully processed and photographed. Okay. The early days of forensics, y'all. I mean, there's not a lot to do I mean that's why you can do 1990s yeah, the crime, shows. crime scene was barely secure I, yeah what's that John Mulaney bit where it's just like we found, a, uh, we found a pool of the assailant's blood or something. Of the killer's blood. Gross. Mm-hmm. Gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love John Polani Excellent, excellent dude. So, Dr. Dolan viewed the bodies, collected hair samples, jarred, and jarred some milk specimens to send to Harvard for testing to see if any of it had been poisoned. Oh, right there in Massachusetts. Yeah. Mm. So, after collecting samples, Dr. Dolan started a thorough examination of the bodies. Mr. Borden... Had a two and a half by four inch gap in his skull. Oh. Whole slivers of bone were missing entirely. Oh. And many could be seen driven into his brain. No. Oh. His left eyeball was split into two. Oh. His face was completely unrecognizable. Oh that is so gross. Oh, so it was just his face that was attacked, like there weren't any other. Yeah, it's just on his face. Oh, that is. He had laid uh, down for a nap, so he was asleep. Well, I mean, that's kind of a small mercy. <sighs> well, Everybody my... naps in this house. Wow. Yeah, Mrs. Borden had taken eighteen hits to the back of the skull, four to the left side, and fourteen to the right. Uh, the blows were so close together, they became crushing wounds, smashing shards of skull into her brain as if she were being bludgeoned with a blunt instrument. Oh, that's so cruel. Uh. One wound flagged it back over her left ear as if she had been facing her attacker when this particular no. blow had hit her. She then also had bruising on her nose that indicated falling on her face before taking the other hits. Oh. Before allowing the bodies to go to the morgue, Dr. Dolan removed the Borden's stomachs to send along to Harvard and determine the times of death. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Still. <gasps> he also removed the Borden's skulls after they were brought from the family home to be used as evidence. Gross. I mean, there wasn't a lot of skull left, it sounds yeah, like. he still had to boil the skin off, too. Oh. Uh, I mean, you know, they boiled everything back then, so... I mean, boiling human flesh was probably a little... It's definitely very disturbing. (laughs) But I'm just saying, like, it's not like now we're like, should we saute this maybe? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So as police search the warden home, Bridget helped them find tools in the cellar. She fished out hatchets and guided them to all the household's tools. Many were covered in layers and dust, but one hatchet head with a broken handle didn't have a layer of fine dust on it and looked as though it had dust placed back on top of it. That was a good try. Yeah. Like, honestly, good old college try. (laughs) And then out in the barn police searched for evidence of lizzie's alibi and clues for solving the burner police saw little evidence that the barn had been disturbed and were very curious as to how a young woman could spend 20 minutes there and have anything of interest to do okay so like if you're gonna get if you know you're gonna do something if it's not a crime even if you even if it's a crime of passion you gotta then go and be like what's my alibi gonna be Oh, I'm going to say I eat three I ate fucking pears. I'm going to go mess around in the barn real fast and gobble a pear or two <laughs> and throw the remains on the floor, mm-hmm. you know? And cover your tracks. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're murdering people, you shouldn't do that. You should just give yourself up to the police. But, like, if you want to be smart about it... <laughs> Yeah. So seeing the sloth and Lizzie's demeanor, police began building their case around Lizzie Borden. And wouldn't you know, after word got out about the deaths at the Borden house, a shopkeeper, Eli Bentz, came forward to the police with some information. Oh no. On Wednesday, August 3rd, he had a woman come in asking for prussic acid, which is hydrogen cyanide. Now, this can be used for some household things, including treating a sealskin cape, but it is an unusual item to ask for. It's not commonly asked for, and people have to have a special permit just to purchase it. Wow. Wait, so did he recognize the woman or was it? Yeah, he remembered that it was Miss Borden who had asked for it and left in a huff when she didn't get what she wanted. Miss Lizzie or Miss Emma? Miss Lizzie. Okay. Um, Just wanted to make sure Emma wasn't in on it. (laughs) So, Officer Harrington even brought Bence to the house to stand out of view and listen into the home to hear Lizzie's voice. Bence was able to identify Lizzie's voice as the same one the woman who wanted the porousic acid the day before the murders. Mm. And with the case building, that is the end Of part one, confirming no. murders. Ellie! We just. Come on! But, that is 11 pages, Ellen. I know, but I want to know more right <laughs> now. We just got to the brains and shit. Oh, I know. Ah! So, after this is like the rest of the investigation and the trial, which oh is wild. Is that when Bridget's gonna get involved? I mean, yeah, she's key in the trial. Okay. Her testimony is quite key. Fuck yeah, good for her. Um, and then some other information that has come out since. Oh? Oh, I'm so excited usually i'm like i'd be i mean i am grossed out by it and it is very sad that's fascinating less sad because he owned you know a textile mill i (laughs) it's very sad that she died that's very sad abigail didn't deserve that shit yeah she was fine yeah she she was doing herself and making sure that her family was taken care of and like yeah honestly oh my god but you know it was you know over 100 years ago so yeah Sometimes. Still, one of the most infamous cases. Well, yeah, because she fucking whacked her folks. I mean, they got away with it. Yeah. Spoiler alert, got away with it. Wait, like, entire, like, she didn't. Yeah. Did she, like, go on tour? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. It's not OJ. Okay. And that was my next question. Did she write a book? <laughs> if I did it. Like, what? I mean, a lot of kids would go to her home and sing the dog roll. Hell yeah. Honestly, become the scary old lady at the end of the road that you wanted as a child you know be the person you needed as a child yeah gosh that'd be so fun around halloween because this was like right when halloween was like getting big as a like oh yeah as a holiday yeah it's becoming a thing imagine having like you know your hometown murderer just chilling at her house that you could teepee on halloween with treats and things that people are too scared to take Hell yeah oh my god i totally would have it's like she didn't fucking poison her folks i mean she tried to but like you know yeah she definitely seemed to want too, with that uh, Oh, at least she had a steel, a seal skin coat or I mean, shit. Yeah. God. You know how warm those would be? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'd have to live in like Alaska to justify having one. But... I mean, we do live in a fairly cold city. We do. It does get very cold here. I mean, because, uh, you know, they, they've done, like, scientists have done studies and been like, you know, Inuit folks have the best winter gear. Like, just, like, which makes sense, because, yes, your skin is yeah. boss. It's made for that. And, like, there are some really, really cold days here when I'm just kind of like, do I have a couple thousand dollars to drop? <laughs> <laughs> get a good fur yeah I mean you You would enjoy going to Alaska because there's a lot of fur shops yeah and the thing is like I would want it but if if you would were to get it done with by like actual like people who like indigenous folks who like actually know what they're doing and like are I mean you could definitely find that in Alaska we would go down a block and we'd be like fur shop across the street from fur shop down the street is another fur shop there's two fur shops in that mall three fur shops over there I just like to be warm and support Native artists and crafters. Oh, of course. You know? Yeah, the uh, Anchorage Native Heritage Center was amazing. Oh, yeah. You told me about that. It, it sounds amazing. so cool. Got myself some earrings and my mom and my sister some earrings. Nice. Is good shit. But that was also the, one, like, the museum one where they had all the cool exhibits, right? Oh, yeah. They yeah. had exhibits on it. all the different tribes in Alaska. That's so Wicked, cool. They like, did little demonstrations that, you know white people and non-native people fucking love um i mean as a as a white people as a i mean i'm not alaskan native when right. i wasn't raised as a native i have native blood but i would not call myself native um Fair yeah because there's a whole cultural aspect yeah of that. and blood quantum is a very much a european way of looking at things and exactly deeply shitty um yeah. anyway let's Oh, yeah, we should wrap up. Yeah, wrap up. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to episode two. And we look forward to giving you Lizzie Boredom part two very, very soon. Woo, it better be. <laughs> I'm invested now. Yes. So we are going to get back to our feuding cats. <laughs> I mean, they haven't. Hess has not hissed in a couple hours. Maybe hour. We're doing, we're doing better. We're doing better. <laughs> um, My cat's the impolite one. Just, yeah yeah but she's a baby which is why greta puts up with it yeah greta is a very good girl but anyway thank you so much listening listening to our podcast thank you so much link up with us on facebook instagram twitter it's a scary life please if you feel uh generous donate on our patreon once a month i just heard some hissing um oh, baby. <laughs> donate to our patreon once once a month patreon.com slash it's a scary life help us feed our cats expensive cat food yeah and we'll give you little extras of tidbits of shit that we talk about and bonus episodes early episodes it's gonna be a fun time yeah um so thank you so much and y'all just have a great fucking day yeah and tune in next time because i sure will be (laughs) (laughs) tune in next time